Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics, the Vote 2019 edition. The federal election campaign officially kicked off today, and it began with an ongoing public relations problem for the Prime Minister. The SNC-Lavalin controversy is back in the news and put the Prime Minister off message for his campaign launch today and his run to win a second term, and gave his adversaries some fresh ammunition. Coming up, we'll hear from the parties, the voters, and we'll examine the issues that will dominate the next 40 days in federal politics. Here's how the campaign got started today. Day one of the election campaign, as always, begins with the Prime Minister visiting Rideau Hall to formally ask the Governor-General to dissolve Parliament. That clears the way for the official campaign to begin and the vote on October 21st. Justin Trudeau took direct aim at his chief rivals, the Conservatives, saying Canadians will have a clear choice on October 21st. We've all got a choice to make. Keep moving forward and build on the progress we've made, or go back to the politics of the Harper years. But the Prime Minister could not escape the SNC-Lavalin affair back in the news again on day one of the campaign. A Globe and Mail story saying the RCMP has been thwarted in its investigation of possible obstruction of justice because of the government's refusal to waive cabinet confidence to allow witnesses to speak with the National Police Force. We uh, gave out uh, the largest and most expansive waiver of cabinet confidence in Canada's history. Even before the Conservative leader hit the road, he met with reporters ahead of the official writ drop and jumped on the latest SNC-Lavalin headlines to say it's time for Justin Trudeau to go. This whole scandal isn't about moving poll numbers. This is about showing to Canadians that Justin Trudeau has lost the moral authority to govern. And clearly the RCMP are taking this seriously enough to start investigating individuals in the Prime Minister's office. If you were the winner, you will be the first Prime Minister in 40 days. The Conservatives and Liberals begin the campaign tied in the national polls. Andrew Scheer's first stop was in Battleground, Quebec where his party believes the path to victory includes adding specific ridings in the province, such as Trois-Rivières, with a message that voters will hear over and over again. So this election is coming down to who you trust to put more money in your pockets so that you can get ahead. While Scheer and Trudeau start the campaign fighting for power, the NDP may be fighting for its survival. Down in the polls, short on cash and candidates, leader Jagmeet Singh faces challenges in every part of the country but insists his message will resonate with voters. What I'm hearing from people is that they're done with governments that seem to continually prioritize making it easier for the very rich and making it harder for them. If the campaign presents potential peril for the NDP, it represents opportunity for the Green Party. The polls at the outset suggest the Greens may be battling it out with the NDP for third place in popular support. And that could mean adding at least several more seats to the two seats the Greens held in Parliament at dissolution. But as she launched her campaign today, Elizabeth May faced questions about some of her candidates and their past opposition to abortion. The Green Party is 100% solid that we will not retreat one inch from a woman's right to a legal and safe abortion ever. That is a commitment. 
The Bloc Québécois is getting back in the game in Quebec after several years of internal turmoil. Now the party could be a factor in many four-way races in Quebec. Their message is simple. What the Bloc Québécois proposes to Quebecers, and actually I would even say to the whole of Canada, is a friendship, is working only for the benefits of Quebec without any kind of enmity against Canadians or against a government that they might choose from themselves for themselves. And we would keep requiring full and entire respect for what we are, for what we want, for what we do, and for what we have to offer our own citizens. And that's the kind of day it's been, day one of the 40-day federal election campaign. Susan Smith, Tim Powers, Robin McLaughlin, uh, thanks for being with us as our coverage continues here. And uh, one last uh, chance to chat about uh, what we've heard uh, so far today. Uh, the campaigns have launched. Uh, let me start there. Uh, we know what they wanted to do today. Were they successful in doing it as leaders and getting the messages out? What did we hear? I think they were. I mean, this is an, a moment that they've all prepared for. So they have all set the tone that they wanted to set uh, for day one of the campaign. The Prime Minister outlined his agenda and his positioning and his slogan. Mr. Scheer wanted to turn the focus onto the SNC issue. Uh, he will eventually, I think, outline what his campaign is going to be about, but he's just, he's pointed it on one issue today for the framing. Same with Mr. Uh, Singh and the others. So they, they want to get off to a strong, positive start. They all want to then go into a stronghold uh, or a potential stronghold for them to rally the troops and really get people excited about the next 40 days ahead. Is, what, 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 what sort of dominates the conversation today, do you think, Tim, in terms of... Uh, uh, it's, it's supposed not, to be an issues day, and we're going to talk yeah. about that, but it's also what's in the news, right? Yeah, it's hard not to believe that the, the Globe story uh, about the latest uh, toings and froings in the SNC and the RCMP's apparent uh, inability because of blocking the receiving from the clerk uh, to get information doesn't dominate. I mean, it certainly was the first question the Prime Minister got asked, so that that's going to set a bit of the frame uh, that will, who knows how long that carries forward. It's probably not the start the Prime Minister wanted to have that back in the news. He will try and bridge out of that. As uh, Susan said, Andrew Shear's team, I think, will look to keep that more front and center. I think you're going to see Andrew Shear try and break away from that a little bit himself and focus on economic issues. Uh, I thought uh, Mr. Singh did well from what I saw today. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he appears to be more comfortable than he's often described uh, as being. He's going to have to be comfortable because he's going to have to answer a lot of uncomfortable questions over the next little while. But um, yeah, I think to, tonight and tomorrow will be about uh, SNC-Lavalin going into the weekend. Uh, to be determined what the uh, the narrative will be. Right, Robin, what do you think? Uh, maybe pick up with uh, with Mr. Singh and uh, he he seemed his launch seemed to really uh, focus on what he probably needed to do, which was to really get into some of the specific issues that the NDP wants to sure. convince Canadians mm -hmm. uh, they can best represent them on. And as we talked about before, it's all about framing today. And the Prime Minister, of course, wanted to frame this as a choice either between going backwards to the Har Stephen Harper's policies with Mr. Singh or the Liberals as the only alternative. Uh, on the flip side, Jagmeet Singh started off by saying that if you want things done differently in Ottawa, tapping into some of the frustration Canadians have with what they see in Ottawa, you have to vote differently. You have to choose differently. And that's him trying to break 
into that kind of blue door, red door narrative that we, we see at the start of this campaign. Uh, and what he also tried to do was play on some of the big, bold ideas the NDP has for this campaign. We all know in 2015 it was the Liberals that came out with bold ideas, and the NDP got, uh, by many accounts, outflanked on the left. So he talked about uh, head-to-toe pharmacare and medical care, the biggest historic expansion of health care. And he did it by using specific local examples, uh, people he had met, uh, you know, a, a, pregnant, um, a pregnant woman who had been a cancer survivor. And that's a, uh, an old trick of trying to localize things but also personalize them. But he also talked about how you're going to pay for that. Uh, Justin Trudeau wants right. to talk about how uh, Andrew Scheer is going to cut taxes for the wealthy. Well, it's Jagmeet Singh saying he's going to raise taxes on, on the wealthiest with a uh, wealth tax on 20, those of $20 no, yeah. million dollars or more. Not, not so I think that's the bold proposals you're going to see from the NDP. Notwithstanding that, I think it's, it's you know, we, we know what the two, uh, the, the two parties that the polls suggest are leading, the Tories and Conservatives, they want it to be about each other. Yeah. Right? That's, that's what we heard today, is that sure. Justin Trudeau talked about Andrew Scheer and Conservatives, and Andrew Scheer talked about Justin Trudeau and Liberals. Yeah, and that's what, I mean, from the Liberal perspective, that's what Choose Forward is about. And that's an easy concept for people to understand, because Stephen Harper and Stephen Harper's ways weren't all that long ago. And we have the evidence of the premiers. We've got Ford, we've got Kenny, we've got Palliser again, we've got others, Scott Moe. Who want, who are, you know, continuing to carry that banner? And as my friend Tim has said, and I will give him credit again, Andrew Shear is kind of the baby brother of all those guys, and and he hasn't really carved a path or demonstrated that he would be anything but that. And I think that's Mr. Shear's challenge because the Liberals are positioning him that way, but he hasn't been able to position himself anything different. How does he fight that narrative, Tim, that it's a vote for the Conservatives and Andrew Shear is a step backwards? Uh, well, I think he needs. To tackle it head on and focus hard as he apparently is going to be doing on the economic opportunity you your family will will benefit from I think he still needs to come out and uh, when the issue comes up again because it will around the matter of uh, his personal evolution on thinking around same-sex marriage that he he does give that some some more uh, commentary uh, but I, I, I don't think he can just be worried about becoming uh, a prisoner of the liberal narrative he's got to perform very well because uh, he generally still is a blank slate to the Canadian public which can be his advantage I, and I think he's got to find a way to turn Justin Trudeau's slogan about looking forward into something about well of course Justin Trudeau doesn't want to look backward because look what the last year and a half has been like for him so you know I think he's got to do a little bit of that but he won't win if he's solely focused on Trudeau and Liberals he has to show that he is a capable person who could be the Prime Minister of Canada. One of the questions that uh, Jagmeet Singh was facing today was uh, how to stop an erosion of progressive support going other places and yet we're hearing from Elizabeth May mm -hmm. saying things like you know make the choice you want this is probably going to be a minority parliament don't get scared into mm -hmm. voting for another party to try and stop somebody else vote for what you want. Uh, how does he deal with that uh, kind of narrative that you know mm -hmm. don't be afraid to look at other people than the NDP because it seems to be what's happening in the polls he's got to try and capture those people back. Well, it's a narrative that the NDP has owned for a very long time. Uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP welcome people making the choice for what they want to vote for. Vote for what you believe in and the person that will look out for you. So we have very leader-centric campaigns now. We have leaders' tours that, of course, the media focus on. So what Canadians look at is who does the leaders, who do the leaders seem to represent? Who will they fight for? Uh, so I think that that's a frame that the NDP is very comfortable with because you see it in the ads they've already released that Jagmeet Singh, he's a fighter. They have images of him in a boxing ring, but talking about fighting for the issues 
that uh, in the Quebec ad, Quebecers care about, and then in, of course, the English ad, the progressives care about. So what I think we're going to see now is there's a lot more scrutiny on the Greens. Uh, and I think that Elizabeth May this week, you know, issuing probably a record number of clarifications for any political party in a week, um, are, are seeing, I think, the effects of some of that scrutiny. You may want so, to clarify that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think she's going to have to prove that she truly is a progressive beyond the climate change fight. We all know she's in the climate change fight, and that's a good thing. But The Greens really are a bit of a blank slate for everybody, yeah, right? The, the, already... the, the issues come back to them now. She's been talking about it for years about climate change, and now it seems to be... Uh, a little more prevalent in the public consciousness so it's kind of and now people are associating that with the greens and there's a new a new audience for that but what else do the greens stand well this for? is That's it this is it and i think this is very important and the level of scrutiny both on ms may and on her campaign team her candidates uh, we've already seen issues with candidates who have been um, anti-abortion and they have anti-abortion statements. She stuck her foot in it, as Robin alluded to earlier this week, on that issue from a socially progressive side. In the past, it's, all, it's always and only been about Elizabeth May. But if she wants to be credible, A, she's going to have to, I think, kind of moderate her um, natural tendencies to just say whatever it is she thinks. And I think they're going to have to keep a close eye on the folks on the ground because if they want to present themselves as a credible national alternative, either in third or fourth place, um, they need to make sure that that's the kind of party and that's the face they're putting forward. Let's finish up our conversation, Tim, on uh, where we see the leaders go now. We're going to see a lot of them in Quebec, Ontario, and British Columbia. How come? That's where the, the, the contests are. There, there are a variety of different contests. I, I think this week you'll probably get a bit of the traditional hit the whole country once because there is an expectation of that, that national parties do that. Then after that, it will hone in to those specific ridings. You might see some time spent by Justin Trudeau uh, and Andrew Scheer in different parts of Atlantic Canada. The Liberals hold all the seats there. Uh, Atlantic Canada, of course, was the place where uh, the Liberals were able to hold on in their worst One period. All 32 in, seats. In, in but, the, but also, no, but, but also in 2011 in their worst period. And I think there's right. a lot of IOUs to be paid there. Uh, so I suspect he and Scheer, uh, Prime Minister and Scheer, will be there. But uh, yeah, National Tour then very focused on seats that can be won and seats that need to be held. Well, for the NDP on where they're going to go, you're going to see the NDP, A, have to shore up the seats that they hold, the incumbents, while also tapping into some of the seats they lost in 2015 in traditional NDP strongholds. So uh, St. John's East in uh, Newfoundland was shut out of Newfoundland and Atlantic Canada last time around. That's a, a seat that Jack Harris, the NDP's former MP and current candidate, uh, has held for a long time. He's a high-profile candidate there. But in particular in Ontario, uh, the Ontario NDP is strong in southwestern Ontario, and there's a lot of growth opportunities that have never been on NDP target seats under Jack uh, Meet Singh. Uh, so I think you're going to see the, the, him use the bus for a concerted period of time this week and then in, uh, uh, in Vancouver Island and uh, Lower Mainland BC. Those are some priority areas for the NDP. All right, Susan? I wonder when they're going to go to New Brunswick. <laughs> That'll there'll be some big food for all there because they haven't made it. Uh, the Prime Minister will cross the country. He'll cross the country many times. Uh, starting off in BC, he will be in the battleground places um, and spending a lot of time, I think, in Ontario and Quebec. There are a lot of votes in Quebec. He'll also go where it's hard for Liberals. He'll go to Alberta and he'll go to Saskatchewan, um, where it's tough for uh, Liberals there. Uh, but to demonstrate that he's there for all Canadians. There are voters there. There are people that vote and support Liberal there. And at the end of the day, as he has said before, the Prime Minister is the Prime Minister for all Canadians. So you'll see that. But they will spend, all of them will spend their time where they think they can get seats. All right. Thanks for spending time with us. Appreciate it. We'll talk again during the campaign. Thank you all. Thank thanks you. And an update on that SNC-Lavalin story that was the number one uh, 
series of questions for the Prime Minister today, and that was word that uh, the RCMP uh, was being thwarted in its efforts to uh, look into whether there was obstruction of, just, uh, of justice involved in uh, the uh, SNC-Lavalin affair, but it's been unable to uh, make much progress on that, according to the Globe and Mail story, because of cabinet confidence and that the government is refusing to waive cabinet confidence, which makes the RCMP's job a little more difficult about whether it can uh, find out uh, enough to decide whether it warrants a full investigation or to move forward with all of this. Uh, what we can tell you tonight is that uh, the Globe has another story. It involves Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former a Justice Minister and Attorney General, and she has been questioned by the RCMP just yesterday in British Columbia, and uh, she was uh, questioned by the Mounties. Won't say much more about what the questioning was about, but it's in relation to SNC-Lavalin, and she is uh, adding her voice to those people who say that uh, cabinet confidences, uh, the waivers should be lifted, that uh, those witnesses who uh, may have something to say to the RCMP should be allowed to say it. So you can expect more questions about this. Uh, in the days ahead on the campaign trail. Now we're going to turn our attention to uh, a big issue that will feature in this uh, election campaign. That's the issue of the environment and climate change. In a moment I'll talk to candidates about that, but first let's take it to the streets and see what Canadians are saying about their concerns around the environment and climate change. I think it's pretty important considering that the Amazon right now is on fire. So like if none of the G7 countries do anything about it, including Canada, I think we're really doomed. And I think uh, if you want my political opinion, I think if the Conservatives win, they're not really going to do anything about it. I feel like the Liberals have a bigger like say in what's going on with the environment. So yeah. Yeah, same goes to me. Honestly, with global warming and all the issues that are happening with the environment, we should seriously pick someone that will care about the subject and that will help it and benefit more. Well, I believe that the, the party should definitely focus on the climate change. Uh, I think it'll affect our future generations and how we live, so I think it's really important that they start fixing the environment now rather than, rather than later. I think that now they're starting to a little bit, but it seems like people can talk about it but not much has really been done. If we ruin the environment, uh, uh, you know, what have we got? Really, that, I think that's, that should be the most important thing. And get away from the tar sands and that kind of thing that's, that's ruining the climate and the country and the environment. Uh, I think that the environment is pretty important at um, yeah at this point in time. So as a campaign issue, I think that it would be um, somewhat important. You know, it, it is important. It's good to be conscious, but let's be real. And I would challenge anyone who's focused on the environment so much to maybe take a look at what's happening globally as opposed to our own backyard. That's that's uh, that double-edged sword that's killing us at the same time. So any true environmentalist, I'm pretty sure there are other places in the world that we could be advocating to make things better. I think right now in today's day and age, the environment um, is a huge, huge component. I think uh, it'll make or break a candidate for sure. Um, when you've got someone campaigning strongly on that, then they need to, uh, again, follow through. And, and, and be clear what that is, because carbon pricing, just saying carbon pricing on something, doesn't say a whole lot to the average voter.
Well, we know that climate change and how to deal with it will figure prominently in the election campaign. It is a key concern for many voters, and they'll have some clear options on offer from the parties. For more on that, let's bring in four candidates to discuss the campaign and climate change. From Montreal, we're joined by Stephen Gilbo. He's the Liberal candidate in the Montreal riding of Laurier-Saint-Marie. He's the former founding member of L'Equiterre, Quebec's leading environmental organization. Ed Fast is the environment critic for the Conservative Party and is seeking re-election in the riding of Abbotsford in British Columbia. Peter Julian has been the finance critic for the NDP and is seeking re-election in the riding of New Westminster Burnaby in British Columbia. And Angela Keller Herzog is the Green Party candidate in the riding of Ottawa Centre. Welcome to you all. Good to have you here to talk about this important uh, issue. Mr. Gilbo, let me start with you. What will your party do about climate change if you're re-elected? Well, if I can take a minute to talk about what the party has done uh, over the last four years. After 10 years of total inaction by the Harper government, the Trudeau government has put in place what, what is certainly the most ambitious climate change plan that we've seen in the history of the country and probably one of the most ambitious we've seen in North America over the last few years. Record level investment in transit, in green infrastructure, in clean technologies, uh, putting a price on carbon so that not only two provinces, Quebec and B.C., would, would be doing something about it, investing in electrification. And these are only some of the measures that have been adopted over the last four years. And I think the platform isn't, hasn't been published yet, but we, what we can expect from, from the Liberal Party is that we will go even further, even faster in, in the fight against climate change in the next four years. All right, Mr. Fast, what's the Conservative plan to deal with climate change? Well, our plan is to make sure that we don't follow the Liberal approach, which has failed. The Liberal uh, plan in, 19, sorry, in 2016 fell uh, 44 megatons short of meeting its targets in 2017, 66 megatons short, 2018, 103 megatons short. Theirs is a failed plan. Our plan shifts the focus to technology, recognizing that you cannot tax your way to a cleaner environment. We believe by making the strategic investments in technology, Canada will be able to do more than its part to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions, including emissions emanating from Canada. And that's why our real plan for the environment, which you can see on our website, www.arealplan.ca, it outlines all the different measures that we're going to bring forward to make sure that we do our part to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, right. but to recognize that this is a global challenge not just a Canadian one. All right, and, uh, and chief among your your uh, proposals, of course, is to repeal a carbon tax, and I'm, I'm going to get to that when we uh, broaden the conversation a bit. But, Mr. Julian, let me go to you. Uh, tell me how the NDP plans to fight climate change. Uh, well, first off, the Conservative uh, record was lamentable, and so is the Trudeau government's uh, record. When you think on September 4th, we had a decision of the Ford, uh, Federal Court of Appeal uh, that allows leave of application to stop the Kinder Morgan project. Uh, half a dozen First Nations applied. This is the second time the courts have refused uh, the Trudeau government's attempt to ram through the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Uh, the Trudeau government putting on a, a symbolic price on carbon that excludes large emitters. Uh, just uh, ridiculous, uh, the, the pretense of the Trudeau Liberals have actually taken action on the environment. So what is the NDP proposing? Well, we're the party of the Green New Deal. I have that motion in front of Parliament in, uh, in a similar vein in other legislatures. Uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has raised it in the House of Representatives. 
and Jagmeet Singh has presented our New Deal for People, which environmental groups are saying is the most ambitious attempt to actually combat the climate crisis that we're living through. All right. what, what's All right. important about the New Deal for People is not just the fact that it reduces emissions by 50%, but also the job creation. We're talking about hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of new jobs in clean energy and energy retrofits. In, in moving to a clean energy economy. And so uh, what we're finding is, particularly among young voters, a tremendous amount of interest in the NDP's approach to fight back. The All right, we're, we're gonna hear a lot, we're gonna hear that word a lot, ambition, and who's got the most ambition. Uh, Angela Keller, Herzog, the Greens are, uh, as I look at the existing promises being made, uh, seem to be the most ambitious when it comes to cutting greenhouse gas emissions, 60% uh, from 2005 levels yeah. by 2030. So tell me more about what the Green Plan is, and you've heard from your uh, your colleagues here, what's on offer to Canadians from the Green Party in, in terms of climate change? The, the Green Party is the only party that has three things, and that's a plan, a target, and a roadmap, and, and the three connected to each other. Um, our plan is a practical transition plan to get us to turn the ship towards the new economy. The target is informed by science and gets us to holding at the 1.5 degree temperature rise that scientists are saying is critical so we don't tip over these tipping points that, that are widely feared. And where we're, I mean, as, as we're speaking in this interview, the Hurricane Dorian is hitting the eastern seaboard, devastating um, those communities. And the third point is a 20-point roadmap that we call Mission Possible um, that will get us there. Okay, Mr. Gilbo, but part of this, and we'll broaden the conversation, part of this conversation in this country is always about uh, the competing interests of the energy sector and, and trying to deal with climate change. And I, I want to ask you about that. Uh, you, you know, uh, you once told the Prime Minister he can't build more pipelines and meet his climate change commitments, and yet the Liber Liberal government has approved the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline and construction's underway. So, I mean, you've had to confront that too. How do you reconcile your Liberal candidacy with your opposition to fossil fuels and pipelines? Well, as I said when I announced my candidacy, I did say that I, I, I was against pipeline and I continue to be against, against pipelines. Uh, but that being said, when I looked at everything that the government has done, I had to come to... I mean, I think what, what's at stake here, you have three political parties who agree that climate change is a very serious issue, that agrees... On, that we don't agree on everything, but we agree on, on many things. And you have one party, the Conservative Party, has systematically dismissed this issue. Uh, just, just last weekend, we had a, a ex-Conservative minister who was saying, that climate change would be good for, for, for Canadians. Well, that's certainly not what we're seeing with the floodings in eastern Canada or the forest fires in Alberta or B.C. or the droughts in the, in, in the prairies. This, this idea that climate change is going to be a great thing for Canadians. So what's at stake is, I mean, you know, who's, who has the most ambitious plan is not, for me, the most important thing. But who has the capacity to put in place the, the necessary things that, that have to happen. Okay. And, and unfortunately, I believe that the Liberal Party is the only one that can do this. Mr. Fast, we, we know that you and other Conservatives will, will slam the carbon tax and carbon pricing introduced by the Liberals. Uh, that's the number one thing that you've promised to do as a Conservative government is to repeal the carbon tax. Explain why you believe you can actually curb greenhouse gas emissions and, and climate change without pricing carbon uh, to try and change habits. Well, we've seen uh, attempts to price carbon across Canada in places like Ontario, which has now moved away from carbon pricing. We've seen it in, in British Columbia, my own province, where they promised that they were going to cap the 
the uh, carbon tax at $30 per ton. In fact, now it's $40 and going up every single year. They promised that it was going to be revenue neutral. Remember, $1 out of a pocket goes back into the other pocket as other tax relief. Well, in British Columbia, that's not the case anymore. It has become a blatant tax grab. Any suggestion that this carbon tax is somehow going to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions in Canada is flawed reasoning when you place it within the political context. We believe the real promise and the real solution lies in technology and ramping up the speed at which green technology gets developed. Our plan does that. And by the way, the Liberal plan... Can, can, can't you have both? No. Listen, why tax Canadians? The tax burden on Canadians is already very significant. When I go door to door in my community and I ask them about carbon taxes, all I get is a response, listen, we already pay enough in taxes. Stop with the taxes. We need affordability in Canada, but we need a sensible plan to address the environment. Okay. Our plan does that. Okay, Mr. Julian, the Conservatives are making this debate about taxes and, and economic hardship, and, and there is an audience for that, certainly in some constituencies in this country. How, how do you argue against that? What, 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 what can you say to Canadians when, when this has become, for many Canadians, a debate about, we've seen the surveys, uh, yeah, I want to do something about climate change. Wait a minute, I might have to pay more to do it. Never mind. Uh, how do you deal with that? Uh, well, well, first off, climate change is costing us about $5 billion uh, this year. Uh, that's going to rise to $50 billion over the course of the next few years. So the economic implications are already profound. Uh, what has to happen is a transition for, for workers in the oil and gas sector. And I come from that sector. I'm the only member of parliament that's actually been regularly ankle deep in oil because I worked at the Shelburne Oil Refinery in Burnaby, B.C., it's now closed. So we understand the economic fundamentals are moving to that transition to make sure we're making the investment. Now, um, Mr. Hebo's party, the Liberal Party, is spending over $17 billion on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, despite the fact that repeatedly they've messed up in court and messed up on the approval process. $17 billion allows us to make that transition to clean energy and create the hundreds of thousands of jobs that come with that transition. All right. Other countries have done it, and Canada can. Okay. But you can't Andrew, rely on your old lobbyist uh, parties, conservatives, and liberals to actually get the job done. Okay. And that's why I think so many Angela Keller Herzog, where, where's the Green Party on the need for a carbon tax or not? You know, I, I think we need to do politics differently, and that's what Elizabeth May talks about. I think that it's, it's hugely irresponsible to turn the carbon tax, which is one tool in a toolkit with many other tools, regulatory incentive, we, we can go into those weeds, um, but to turn the carbon tax into this political football and then everybody's talking about this football and Ford is putting stickers at the gas pump, I mean, this is not helping the situation. We're, we're facing a climate crisis. Scientists are telling us about it. There's thousands but of people in the street. But do you need to have a carbon street. tax? Do you need to have a carbon tax? We, we need to have effective tools. And whether we have a carbon tax which is set too low and a number of other tools which are going to be effective, fine, then we're doing something. We're doing an action. Right. But if we're just saying that we're going to have like more tech technical subsidies for corporations or we're going to have roundtables that talk about things, we need action. And actually, we need to work together. 
um, and not turn economic tools into political footballs. Mr. Gilbo, you wanted to weigh in on, on the conversation around, well, let me hear you on this conversation around taxes uh, and the, the value of pricing carbon, whether you can have an effective plan without it. Every single independent expert that has looked at the Conservative plan has said that their plan would do less in terms of fighting pollution and would cost more. I, I'm sure Mr. Fass has no explanation. He can't explain why the fact that the two best performing provinces in Canada, from an economic perspective, are the two provinces that have had carbon pricing in place for over 10 years, which are Quebec and BC. They're the best performing provinces right now from an economic perspective. Um, so, so it is happening. This transition is happening. So. The question is, how do, how do we push it to, to, to the next level? True, the Trudeau government did invest in a pipeline. I disagree with that. But for $1 that they have put in the pipeline, they're putting $15 to fight climate change. The, 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 it, we're talking about a seven, $70 billion climate plan that has been put into place over the last four years, and that will start to generate real benefit, like okay. transit projects so, that are happening all across the country. That being the case, would you support other pipelines? No, 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 no. I, I've said I've said it before, and and the Trudeau government even said no to to the Northern Gateway pipeline. Uh, first time in, in in our history that that a federal government has said no to a major oil and gas infrastructure. Right. So and you're they, you're prepared to accept the Trans Mountain, but you won't accept any other pipelines. No more new pipelines. Is that it? Well, I, I've said no. Uh, there are no other pipelines being proposed. Well, right somebody now. might propose uh, one. So so, but if they do, you think the government should oppose it? I think we need to, to invest less and less in new fossil fuel infrastructure and put more and more money in this transition where, with which the Greens, the NDP and us agree with. Right. Mr. Fast, why don't you, well, final word as we go around here, uh, answer some of that. You've heard your, your other colleagues are uh, largely on the same page when it, when it comes to the fight against climate change with different kinds of approaches to it. but. Uh, how do you consider that when you're painted as the party that's kind of the odd man out here uh, doing your own thing? Uh, are you okay with that? Absolutely. And that's why Canadians have a very clear choice to make. They have a Conservative Party that will not increase the tax burden on them, a tax burden that would be increased by a tax that will actually not achieve our Paris targets. We believe we have a very good plan that focuses on technology make sure that the large emitters do not get exemptions like they do under the Liberal plan. Huge exemptions of 90%, up to 90%. Nobody gets exempted under our plan. They have to invest in their own success, okay. in their own technology. We believe our plan will lead us, uh, gives us the best chance to achieve the Paris targets. And clearly the Liberal plan is not getting us there. Everybody Mr. acknowledge that. Okay, Mr. Julian, uh, what do you want voters to think about uh, if climate change is driving their vote? What, what do you want them to think about at the ballot box? Uh, well, it, it, the Conservative plan is costing them already $5 billion a year. So you talk about increased taxes when we, when we have to deal with the increasing disasters caused by climate change. It's going to hit everybody in the pocket. Secondly, uh, the rank hypocrisy of the Liberals they're driving a pipeline, Kinder Morgan, that will create uh, an export for raw bitumen for the next 50 years. So there is absolutely no way to deal with the climate emergency when Mr. Trudeau's pipeline, uh, that fortunately now has been rejected twice by the courts, is rammed through. So for a Liberal candidate to pretend that somehow they can oppose the pipeline and still be valuable to the, the fight back against the Climate change is simply ridiculous. All right. And, and the NDP has the plan that 
environmental groups are saying is the most uh, the boldest and most effective uh, amongst all political parties in our country's history. So people need right, to look me, at the plan on the NDP well, website. They should, they should look at everybody's plan. Angela Keller-Herzog, what do you want voters to think about when they go to the ballot box if climate change is the issue for them? We need action. We, we need not only talk. Did you know that the first climate action plan that Canada had was in 1988 under Brian Mulroney? So I think that these guys, the old parties, they've had 30 years and we haven't seen any action. Canadian emissions are rising and rising and we're second, I think, on per capita emissions after Saudi Arabia. It's, it's not a good record. So Elizabeth May, I think, is the only leader that has unwavering commitment to climate action. All right. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Thank you all for your time today. Appreciate it. And uh, good luck on the campaign trail. We'll uh, talk again. I bet. Take care. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Canada is affected by climate change, meaning that a long-term shift in weather conditions, such as changes in temperature, precipitation and winds is taking place. The planet is warming up faster than it ever has. Scientific research has established that human activities to blame, with the number one cause being greenhouse gas emissions such as fossil fuels, which leads to a natural greenhouse effect. Over the last 60 years, Canada's average temperature rose by 1.6 degrees Celsius, a higher rate than most other countries mostly because of its proximity to the north. Boreal regions being the most affected by warmer temperatures due to warmer winter and spring temperatures. Already the Arctic sea cover is reducing, which poses a challenge for species relying on ice for survival. More ice melting leads to changes in average and extreme sea level. Some of these changes are already part of the picture in Canada. Heat waves, heavy rainfalls, flooding, droughts and forest fires all caused a lot of damage in the past years. Aside from environmental impact, climate change also takes a toll on human health. A well-known example is Lyme disease, a tick that made its way to Canada because of rising temperatures. And many illnesses are related to temperature extremes such as respiratory and cardiovascular diseases and occupational health risks. Climate change may also affect Canadians by forcing them to move out of their homes in regions where flooding and forest fires are now a recurring problem. Well, it's time now to bring in my next guest, David uh, Coletto from Abacus Data, is the CEO of Abacus, the public opinion research uh, firm and analysis firm, and he's a frequent contributor, of course, to all our conversations here at CPAC, and he's with us uh, for the duration of the election campaign. David, you're going to be here to provide us uh, some of your special insights to not just the, the public opinion surveys you've been doing at Abacus and will be doing, but all public opinion surveys. I think it's really important. What we wanted to do here was have a chance to bring somebody with your expertise in because the parties poll, the parties are always checking what the voters are thinking. We want to know what the voters are thinking too. It kind of levels the playing field. What do you think you'll be able to tell us as we watch the campaign unfold? Well, certainly we're going to talk about the horse race, which everyone is interested in, but I think my goal will be also to help explain campaign dynamics, how are voters reacting to things that happened throughout the campaign, like the leaders' debates and, and other kind of moments that happened that we were wondering, does this yeah. change the game, is it the same? Um, also talk about issues, um, do some issues rise or fall depending on their prominence in the campaign. So it's going to really give, I hope, uh, viewers a, an opportunity to, to make sense of all the polls. There'll be lots of polls that come out and, and really distill it down to what's happening 
and why does it matter? Okay, so we're going to, in a few moments, we're going to pivot our conversation to the importance of the environment and climate change. But before we get to that, and, and some of that's included here, let's run through the list of what people are talking about as key issues that may drive their votes. What are you finding in the polling you've done so far? Right, so we regularly ask people, you know, in this case, name the five issues. We give them a really long list and say, what five issues are most important to you in terms of this election? And, and what we find, and this has been fairly consistent over the last few months, but what we find is that cost of living, uh, over half of Canadians put that in their top five issues, followed by health care at 42% or access to health care. Uh, 39% say climate change and the environment, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, taxes at 38, always high up on that list. The economy, 33, and other issues like poverty and equality, housing, uh, immigration and refugee policies, government spending and deficits, and the cost and availability of medicine round up what I describe as the tier one issues, meaning more than one out of four Canadians puts it on their list. There's a lot of other issues we ask about that get much smaller numbers. So these are the, the core in which if you, you fill a room full of Canadians, they're likely talking about one or more of these issues. Okay, let's, we're going to hear a lot about climate change and the environment in this campaign, perhaps more than any other campaign right. in, in recent memory. And let's get drilled down on that and some of the findings you have for us. And we hear a lot um, leading up to the campaign. We're going to hear during the campaign that we're in a climate emergency and a climate crisis. What do you find when you go to the people on this? Well, most Canadians agree. Um, but it's not overwhelming. So 57% of Canadians, when we give them a choice, what's, what comes closest to your view on this issue? 57% say climate change is a crisis, requires immediate action. For the rest of the country, it splits um, with, with, the, with more, far more saying, I, th I think climate change is happening. I'm just not sure we can do anything about it. It's kind of the sort of the middle ground on this, people who, who aren't as passionate or, or worried about the issue. And then there's a small 10% minority, maybe not tiny, but small, who say, uh, it's a hoax that it's not happening, and so this really represents, I think, the, the, the stasis of the status of where we are in this. Um, after a summer of fires in the Amazon, after you know hurricane season, mm -hmm. um, and I think a long-term recognition, more and more Canadians are becoming concerned with this issue, but it's still not a consensus yet. And so which is why it's debated and why no elections matter. And, and why? So what's the challenge there for a? for a politician, and there are a number of parties in this campaign saying, look, we need urgent action, we need to do it now, it's going to cost, and we've seen lots of surveys too. That when, yeah. when Canadians, yeah, there's, there's an issue we need to take care of it, but I don't want to pay any more to do it. So what's the challenge if you're a politician trying to make the case for urgent action? Well, I think th for those who want urgent action, you're fighting with a larger group of people, but it's still not big enough to guarantee victory. Mm -hmm. That because about 40% of Canadians either aren't you know, don't care deeply about this issue or don't believe it's happening at all, it does create space for if only one party or two parties occupies that kind of uh, position on the, on the spectrum, um, then, you know, if you think about it, really, the Liberals, the cons um, NDP and the Greens are going to be fighting aggressively to, to make climate change an issue and to say that they're the best to deal with it. If they slice and dice up 60%, uh, the 40% who don't really care about it, that might be enough to, to win an election if you're the Conservatives or... I don't think it's going to happen, but the People's right. Party. And let's talk about that because then, then you sort of went 
added and broke it down by yeah. views uh, on climate change by party. This is really interesting. It really find. is. And, and climate change has become one of the most politicized issues in Canada. I think immigration uh, is another one. And if you look at, for example, the Conservative Party, and we say those who support the Conservatives, how does their views on this issue? Well, 36% of Conservatives think climate change is a crisis. Mm. But the majority are on the other side, thinking it's happening, not a big issue, or it's a, it's a hoax. Or it's a hoax. They actually look very similar to those who, in our survey, would support the People's Party of Canada. And then you have pretty much everyone else who every party has a small number of people who think it's not a priority. But they but look all at, have a majority of supporters. Look at the similarity. We're, the, we're in a crisis. We need exactly. to do something. The similarity between the Liberals, the New Democrats, and the Green Party supporters, and to some extent the Bloc, is quite, quite consistent and clear and shows the, the politicization of this issue. Conservatives don't have to be on the lead of it because their they're supporters, um, well, some of them care, not all of them do, and that's the dilemma I think conservative politicians often find themselves. And then you, you, you decided to look at or you, you, you canvassed people for who's got the best approach then to, to dealing with climate change. What do you find here? Well, we find this is the one issue where the Green Party um, wins out on this. These are people who care about climate change, and 42% of them say the Green Party is the best deal to deal with it. The Liberals come second at 21, and all the other parties are well back, uh, the Conservatives and the New Democrats, and about 19%. Um, are unsure. But if we go to the next slide, what's interesting is when we ask people, okay, only between the Liberals and the Conservatives, who do you think is better, right? right? Because the Greens have a natural advantage because of their name and yep. their, their focus on that issue. This is where we can see um, what happens if this election becomes polarized between the Liberals and the Conservatives. The Liberals lead substantially among those who care about climate change on who would do best, right? 72% to 28, which shows both the opportunity for the Liberals, right, as well as the risk. The risk is if they make this election about climate change, that opens the door to the Greens and the New Democrats to say, we're going to go faster, we're going right. to be more aggressive. The, the, the opportunity is if it becomes that and people would rather have more action, and the perception is that the Conservative plan may not be as aggressive as the Liberal one, the Liberals have a big advantage on this issue and can kind of coalesce people. I think it also explains them. the narrative to a certain extent that we're seeing already, right, which is from the Liberals, this is a climate crisis, we need to take action. Uh, and the Conservatives frame it as a, as a, as, as purely a, 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 or almost entirely a, just a money issue. Right. This, this is a tax grab. This is about getting money out of your pocket. It's not about climate change. And that's why you, you, the, the challenge, the Conservatives frame this as, this is about fighting climate, it's about taking your money. Exactly. Right? We're going to hear and more you see of that. that yeah. All right, what happens when you flip to the next? How important is the carbon tax? Well, this, yeah, and this is the other side of that, this so. issue, right? And, and so, again, the carbon tax as an issue doesn't get onto that tier one issues that I, that I talked about earlier, but it does appear one out of five Canadians say the carbon tax is, a, is an issue that's going to drive right. their vote. Last in the, in the survey numbers here. Right. In, in this board. In this board. But so still I, 19%. I put it in comparison. It's, it's higher than a lot of other issues. Yes. So there is a sizable number of Canadians who, who identify it. There are most of them are conservatives, so it's again an, a, an issue that I think Andrew Scheer has effectively engaged his own voter base on. And so when we ask people in the next board, among people who care about the carbon tax, which party do you think is best on that issue, mm -hmm. the conservatives win easily over the liberals, 42% to 17%, and then all the other parties. And the unsure is, is actually lower than a lot of other issues we test, which means this is an engaged audience on this issue. There's a reason they're highlighting uh, the Conservatives or the Liberals, and it's also a polarized fight. Um, so if the election's about the carbon tax, um, the Conservatives do better. If the election is about action on climate change, 
you can see how the Liberals or the Greens or another party uh, can do better and the Conservatives would struggle more. All right. Uh, so you, this gives, gives our viewers some obvious ammunition here to help them understand the kind of conversations they're going to hear from the parties in the campaign and why they're hearing what they're hearing. Yeah. David Coletto, thanks. Thanks, Peter. A carbon tax is a tax on carbon emissions, much like a sales tax. There are different types of carbon tax around the world. But for the most part, it's a levy on fossil fuels, such as gas, coal, natural gas, propane, and fuel oil. The added cost is usually proportional to how much carbon dioxide is emitted per unit of energy. On the other hand, there is no tax on renewable energy, such as hydro or solar. Most economists agree that a carbon tax is the cheapest way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. However, policies may differ on how carbon tax revenues are spent. In Canada, the federal carbon tax is entirely refunded to individuals, meaning it's revenue neutral. The goal is to create an incentive for people to use less fossil fuel without emptying their pockets. All right, so we've seen from a lot of the polling that climate change uh, may be a key deciding factor for a lot of Canadians and how they cast their votes. And a, a lot of the debate will be focused on carbon taxes and what role they play in the fight against climate change. I want to discuss some of that with my next two guests. Christopher Reagan is an associate professor of economics at McGill University and the chair of Canada's Ecofiscal Commission. He believes that pricing carbon is essential to fight climate change. And Kenneth Green is the, pre is the resident scholar and chair in energy and environmental studies at the Fraser Institute. He's uh, dead set against carbon taxes or certainly against the way they're being applied in this country today. Gentlemen, thank you both for taking time to speak with me about this important issue today. It's good to have you both here. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Reagan, let me start with you. What do you think it says about the weight of the climate change issue and the need for action when so many Canadians are saying it's become a priority for them and they're focused on it in this election campaign? What does it tell us? Well, I think it tells us that, uh, you know, the Canadians are getting on board. They're getting concerned about this issue. I think it's becoming personal for many Canadians, whether they are uh, whether they're reading more about the issue or whether they're seeing more about fires or floods or, uh, you know, they've, they've got friends that have been impacted, they've been impacted. I think it's actually been quite a change over the past 15 years, probably even over the past five years, about the number of Canadians that are just worried about climate change. And they, uh, you know, the, the vast majority of Canadians want their governments to actually take some sensible action. Uh, after that, it, you know, it, you start to lose kind of consensus about what the best action is or what Canadians right. want to do about it. But, but they problem. All right, Kenneth Green, would, do you see something happening out there? Do you think there's a, a, at least a larger engagement with people on this issue? Well, I think as, as, as um, things progress and people, there's more and more news coverage of climate uh, phenomenon like wildfires and things like that. So I think people are, are more and more aware. There's so much more social networking on climate change, uh, so much more newspaper coverage to climate change. So I think, I think Chris is right. People are uh, are increasingly aware of the risk of climate change, and they are willing to have their government do something commonsensical about it. But again, I, Chris is right again, which is when you get into the nitty gritty of what does Canada, with 1.6 percent of the globe's greenhouse gas emissions, do to have any measurable impact on the climate? Um, 
that's a whole separate question and whether or not any measure would be effective, much less a, a regulations or a carbon price. All right, Mr. Reagan, the Professor Reagan, the, the, the debate has really come down to that carbon tax or no carbon tax. We're going to hear a lot about that. Why do you believe a carbon tax is really the way to go? Well, the reason why most economists, uh, maybe even all the economists that I know, would prefer a carbon tax to anything else uh, as a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is that a carbon tax reduces those emissions at the lowest possible cost. Now, that sounds like a geeky thing, but it's not. Because if you're going to expend resources to actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions, then you want to do it in the least costly way so that you can maintain the most prosperity for the economy. And so that's what the Ecofiscal Commission has been all about. It's about how to put a price on pollution so that you can reduce pollution, but you can also have the best possible, the strongest economy. And so I think there is a challenge in explaining to Canadians how a carbon price works. I think there's a challenge in explaining why it's better than more intrusive and prescriptive regulations. But that's why economists overwhelmingly support a carbon price, because right. it does it. Kenneth, Kenneth Green, why do you think uh, that that's not the way to go, that this is not an explanation issue, that it's, a, it's the wrong approach issue? Well, because economists um, with their blackboards or whiteboards and uh, their, their general theory assume that politicians are going to enact the carbon tax in a way so that it actually is cost-effective and efficient. So one of the things that Professor Reagan said um, is that we'd rather have this instead of regulations, but we don't. We now have... We have vehicle fuel economy standards. We have appliance efficiency standards. We have home building efficiency standards, office building efficiency standards. All of these are basically stealth carbon taxes, and no one has moved to remove any of them. We're not getting a revenue neutral in lieu carbon tax. We're getting a carbon tax glommed on top, maybe with a federal rebate to certain populations, um, but it's not going to reduce corporate income taxes or personal income taxes. And so we're not getting this theoretical all economists love carbon price pricing or carbon taxes. We're just we're in here in Canada, it's our experience in Canada where these have been implemented. They are not in any way being implemented in a textbook fashion that would, would really allow you to say this is more effective or more efficient than a regulation. Right, you just can't say that because they have so corrupted the implementation of carbon taxes in Canada, diverting revenues, layering our regulations, um, that, that you, you can't make that argument from a purely theoretical economic standpoint and back it up. What's your, what's your response to that, uh, Professor Reagan? Is that, 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 in theory, a good idea in application? It's not working? Well, I disagree uh, with parts of what Ken said and agree with others. So, uh, for example, the, the BC carbon tax that's been in place since 2008 was for its first 10 years revenue neutral. So all of that revenue was given back to the people in the form of lower personal and corporate income tax and, and support checks to low-income people. The federal uh, carbon tax, often we call a federal backstop that's, uh, that's now in place, um, is giving back 90%, 90% of the revenue. So it's not revenue neutral, I agree with that, but it is giving back large chunks of revenue. Now, where I will agree with Ken, for sure, is that... A carbon tax is um, is better than intrusive regulations. It's a lower cost policy. And so I do think that our governments, both provincial and federal governments, should be looking for some of those policies that they had on the books before that they no longer need because they've got a carbon tax in place. And some of those should be reformed or even repealed. Right. And here's Ken okay. and I. But final thing is that 
There are some things that a carbon price can't do. Ecofiscal wrote a report on this. There are some things that a carbon price can't do. Methane regulations, for example, are a pretty good idea because methane leaks just don't lend themselves well to carbon pricing. So you've got to have, I, I'm strongly in favor of having mostly a carbon price doing the heavy lifting, but then you've got to carefully choose your other policies around the edges. I don't think governments are doing this perfectly today, um, but we, we rarely actually have perfect policy uh, at the beginning, and hopefully it gets better over time as we as we learn how to improve it. All right. What about that, you know, uh, Kenneth Green? Is, is well, are, are, the, are the, the makings there of something that could be perfected if uh, some of the things you're talking about were, were, were carried out? Well, but as Chris has pointed out, British Columbia, which had their road neutral carbon tax for a certain number of years, I don't think it was 10, but um, it quickly became non-revenue neutral. And very early on, they started diverting parts of the revenues to boutique interests, uh, northern, northern uh, bands, um, Aboriginal bands, children's programs, uh, schooling programs, things like that, which are not really about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So very early on, the, the BC experiment started to go off the rails and become less and less revenue neutral. The current government makes no pretense of revenue neutrality at all. And so we're not moving toward perfect carbon tax that replaces regulations. We're moving toward a highly imperfect carbon tax that includes more regulations. Oh. And, and that, that's not really going to be an efficient outcome for society, especially if you look to the South. Because our, one of our biggest competitors and, and economic trading partners is not going this way. They're not going in the direction of carbon pricing. They're not even going in the way of carbon reg regulation. Right. They're and, going in the way of deregulation and, and increased um, hydrocarbon production. So, so this is the this is the competitiveness argument, right? I mean, that's right. Yeah. Canada will lose competitiveness. We just did a paper on this. The problem with, with becoming non-competitive is that you wind up leaking your emissions, right? So when your Canadian business is looking to invest, will we'll put will put its marginal dollar here in Canada, where it costs more to do business. We'll put its marginal dollar in Oklahoma, where it costs less to do business. And will the carbon simply be emitted elsewhere? All right. I know, Professor, I know Professor Reagan, you, you, you want to respond to that. You, you, you don't buy the competitiveness <laughs> argument. I'll try to be brief. The first thing is um, there is no, you know, there's no deep theory that says that a carbon price has to be revenue neutral in order for it to work. That's a political choice. I happen to agree with Ken. Uh, that if you're selling this to the people, then it's probably easier to sell the idea of a carbon price if it is revenue neutral. But a carbon price still reduces emissions, and it still reduces emissions in a very low-cost way, even if it is not exactly revenue neutral. So don't, don't uh, kind of get sucked into that red herring. The second thing is on business competitiveness. This is a super important issue. Um, it is really important if we in Canada are going to put a carbon price in place that we think about the impact on our especially emissions intensive and trade exposed sector, refineries, cement, fertilizer, steel, etc. Um, but where, you know, in the, in the federal policy that is an output based pricing system, it has these two parts of the policy. And the paper that Ken talked about that was that was written and released by the Fraser Institute, I think, last yeah, week, yeah. really, really didn't address this issue as well as it should have. There's there's one half of the policy, which is the carbon price, which sends the incentives to reduce emissions. The other half of the policy, and we really should think of it as a as a second half of the policy, is basically output based subsidies to those firms to keep them competitive. Well, in the Fraser Institute study, that wasn't formally modeled. 
it was really given lip service toward the end. But that really is half the policy. And whether you look at the way the Alberta policy was designed uh, under Rachel Notley, or uh, the way it's being do done in Quebec with the cap-and-trade system, or the federal backstop, there is uh, serious attention being paid to the competitiveness factor. So it's a super important issue, but it is built into the federal policy. All right, Mr. Green, you want to respond to that? Well, I mean, the, the, this is one of the problems with carbon pricing and cap-and-trade in general, which is that um, once you institute carbon pricing or cap-and-trade, you quickly realize that some of your industries are, as Chris said, uh, either emission-intensive or highly trade-exposed, and you wind up having to give them subsidies. If you give them subsidies, you neutralize the, the actual sort of impact of the carbon price part because you let them off the hook. So you let your automakers off the hook, you let your steel manufacturers off the hook. The one, people who wind up paying the actual taxes are little guys, houses, schools, things like that. But if you're going to shield your trade-exposed, high-emitting um, industries, you're going to do it at the expense of not getting as much emission reduction as you would if they were experiencing the full burden of the tax. Mm. Okay, let, let's finish on this. Uh, and you've been generous with your time, but let, let's look at uh, Professor Reagan. Isn't one of the biggest challenges uh, turning anxiety in, into action? Uh, we, we keep seeing surveys that show Canadians are growing increasingly concerned about climate change, but when you ask them whether they're willing to accept uh, carbon taxes that result in big jumps in energy costs, for instance, they say no thanks. So where does that leave us? Well, I agree. This is a challenge. So Canadians do, you know, in, in the vast majority want to take action and they want their governments to take action on climate change. I think for many Canadians, it, it, it's, it, it, they haven't yet got their head around what does it mean for them. And this is related to the issue of how does a carbon price work? Some, a lot of people think, well, by just putting a price on or a tax on, you know, fossil fuels, why is that going to change things? Um, so I think there is a is a, uh, a communications challenge for any government that wants to do this. Uh, I think most Canadians now believe there is a, a problem that needs to be addressed, but they haven't yet got to the point where they understand or uh, uh, or can compare the different policy options. And I think our governments, uh, federal and provincial, have to do a better job in explaining. All right. Why these policies work, how they work, and why they're better than alternatives. All right, uh, Kenneth Green. Uh, let, Kenneth Green. Let, let me let me give a final word to you. Sure. Um, you can you can cite any number of polls as to whether Canadians are concerned or not. Um, in both the U.S. and Canada, generally climate change issues and environmental issues rank low on people's critical concerns, which involve more like healthcare and schools and and uh, firefighting and police. Um, but even if if that's the case. With the way we're doing carbon pricing in Canada does not fit the theoretical model of how to make it efficient and better than regulation. And we have a long, long way to go before we're going to get in there. And as Chris said, we should be removing regulations that are, that are superfluous in a carbon pricing situation. But no environmental group I've ever heard of says they're willing to do that. Right? So right. they're willing to roll back your vehicle fuel economy standard, or they're willing to let you buy a washing machine that will wash your clothes in only an hour instead of three hours because it's super hyper efficient. But nobody, nobody will talk about that. That's always put on the table as a selling point. Let's do this. We'll replace these. But that grand bargain never comes out. All right. Well, it's at least talked about, but it's 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 bait and switch. We're talking about a perfect model. You're going to get an imperfect model. All right. Well, at least we've uh, we've uh, had a chance to uh, 
push along the conversation in our time today, and I appreciate uh, both of you for taking the time to do that. Christopher Reagan and Kenneth Green, uh, good to talk to you and take care. Thank, Thank you. you.